Welcome to the Real Talk Real Estate Podcast with hosts Aleem Savani and Brandon Daniel. Welcome to Real Talk Real Estate. My name is Aleem Savani. I'm Brandon Daniel. And today I'm happy to announce we have a special guest. We have Aubrey Bernstein. You may know him from social media as Mortgages by Aubrey. Aubrey, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate be, uh, to be here. For yeah, sure. welcome. This is very exciting. So tell us a bit about yourself. How long have you been doing this? I've been a mortgage agent for approximately three years. Um, I've been in the lending industry for about five. Um, so that's how long I've been uh, doing mortgages, residential mortgages. Yeah. Um, more about myself. Uh, prior to that, um, I did debt collection. So, oh, well, you know, yeah, it's a tough yeah, job. Yeah, Call yeah. people on the phone saying, you know, you owe this money. I was good at it, but it's like, it's hard on your heart because, you know what I mean? Like these people, sometimes they can't pay. So yeah, didn't do that uh, for too long. Um, and I've had, you know, various sales jobs throughout my whole life. Like I started knocking doors when I was 13. What selling, were you doing knocking doors at 13? I was selling subscriptions to the yeah. Toronto Star. Um, basically like a three-month promotion. And that was when I was 13. So what was that, like um, 2008? And... Uh, people at that point still were starting not to read the paper. It was all online. So it was yeah. a tough sell. Yeah. So I learned rejection at a very early age. Yeah. Out of 100 doors, 99 said, no, I don't want the paper. But, you know, you have to give them the reason why they want it. So I learned how to communicate. Well, that's good because rejection actually in real estate and mortgages is huge. If you don't know how to deal with rejection, like you won't succeed. Like it's harsh to say, but like if you can't take that. Absolutely. Then, right. yeah, you're not going to succeed. Yeah. yeah. If you're trying to work in any sales profession, if you get discouraged Long-term from rejection, you're, just, you're not going to be able to handle it. So it's good to get that out of the way first. Um, and from there, I tried a few different businesses, but it wasn't until I did mortgages where I found the best combo, which was I was good at it, and I actually liked it. Yeah. So when you find those two pieces in any business, you got to take that and run with it. Absolutely. So that's when I found so it. So what made you get like into mortgages? Well, I was coming off a different business, um, and... I was sort of in a time in my life where I was thinking, what should I do? Um, you know, and yeah, basically it was just going from one, one industry. I was in collections. I was trying to do my own thing for a while and I just didn't see myself doing it long term. So I was looking at a few different options. I think I Googled like 10 best jobs, something like that. One was like a paralegal. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I'm, I've been, you know, my dad's a lawyer, so I know a little bit about the law. Um, and you know, I was interested in that. Then I saw a mortgage agent and I've always been a numbers guy. Okay. So that works. Yeah. 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 You know, uh, growing up at school, I was, I was very good at math. So I said, okay, let's give it a try. I looked at the licensing requirements. Wasn't too much. Um, studied, passed the exam. Uh, this was right when COVID was happening. So a lot of brokerages weren't really hiring. They say, well, if you're not experienced, we can't take you on. I think I went to three or four brokerages before someone hired me and, well, that's different than real estate. Real estate, they they would take everybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, but then it's for, it's for you to succeed or fail, right? Absolutely, yeah. bro. absolutely. So that's how I got into it. Yeah. Oh no, that's good. So yeah, I know the market's crazy right now, so we got a lot to talk about for sure, guys. Um, yeah, I think we want to cover things today, such as uh, maybe you can help us better understand, yeah. you know, fixed rates, variable rates, for sure. Um, you know, bond yields or sorry, government bond yields. Yeah. Um, how one's credit might affect them getting a yeah, mortgage. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, let's start with that. Okay. Um, so how would one's credit affect them getting a mortgage? So credit is a huge component 
of um, qualifying for a mortgage. There's three main ones, credit, income, and down payment or asset, right? So the credit aspect, as a lender, just think of it this way. If you're giving someone $500,000 to purchase a house, yeah. you want to know that they have the ability to repay it on time. And by looking at their credit report, you see their credit history. Have they had any late payments in the past couple of years? Have they had anything go to collections? Have they gone bankrupt, consumer proposal? What's their credit score? How many credit cards do they have? So it's a lot more than just the score. The score is just the tip of the iceberg. We really, when we pull the report, we look at the entire package. I've had clients, for example, who've had a 780 score, but the bank said no. And you might be asking, well, yeah, how can they say no yeah, 780? Yeah. They had such limited credit history. They had one phone bill with Rogers, and that's all they had. They didn't have a credit card. No one ever teach them about credit. So because they had nothing negative on the report, their score was actually high, but it's what we call a thin report. There was no actually history. So we had to substitute, um, and we got some like bank statements that shows they're paying rent on time. We got a letter from their landlord to, because um, usually they want to see at least two accounts. But uh, credit's huge. Like I can go on talking a while. I don't want to. So like you know. for credit, um, if someone ha- is making like two, three hundred k, that's what you need right now to buy a house, basically. In Toronto, yeah, yeah a year. Now, if the credit is like six hundred and fifty, yeah, well, is that something that's workable? Or, Good question. Right, like because you have low credit but high income. Yeah, but maybe your debt ratio is high. You default. You made a couple of late payments on your credit card. All yeah. that. Um. Each bank has a minimum credit score threshold. Technically, for a bank like Scotia Bank, their minimum is 650, right? That doesn't mean if you have 650, they're going to approve you. It's circumstantial. They have to take a look at your report. So if it is a lot of late payments, at the end of the day, we have to justify to the bank. We have to say, well, why did Mr. Smith have this issue one year ago yeah. and he was mis- making late payments? So where is he at now? If we can show other aspects of the file, like he has super strong income, He's borrowing at not even near his maximum. He has a good amount of assets. Then if one issue, one aspect is a little bit lower, but the others are better, then we can present that to the bank and get an approval. So is it possible? Yes. It really just depends on the overall file. But uh, from an A lender, the minimum you want to be is 650, mm-hmm. ideally 680 or higher. Okay. Yeah. Now, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just going to say, um, yeah, just like, you know, I've learned a lot about actually credit uh, mm-hmm. this past year um, because before I made the mistake, I had some loans coming out of like university, stuff like that. And, you know, I thought just if you pay everything off right away, that's going to like boost your credit. Right. And I wasn't carrying like any debt at one point. Mm-hmm. And my credit score actually went down. Yeah. So I was like. Hold on, your credit score went down when you paid everything off? Because I had, I had nothing. Yeah. I had no credit card at that point, nothing. And then my credit score went down and I was a little bit confused. I was wondering, how does that happen? How does that make sense, right? Yeah, that's a solid point. And it, you wouldn't believe how common that is from clients, friends. They think, okay, I have debt, pay everything off. That should be good, right? No yeah, that's what, that's, what I, that's yeah. what I'm thinking too. Because you just want to keep some sort of balance, keep it under the 30%. Is that what it is? There's a few different categories that make up your score. Okay. One is diversity of credit, which means how many different accounts can you um, responsibly maintain? It's not a bad thing to have many credit cards as long as you maintain them responsibly. So ideally you want to have maybe one or two credit cards, a line of credit. You know, you don't have to have an auto loan, but if you do, then that potentially can help. Don't go ahead and get one just for this. But you want to have at least two accounts with at least one of them being what we call a revolving account, like a line of credit or a credit card. 
if you just pay everything off and make the mistake of closing that account. That's what I did. Then, you know, you have an inactive report. So, really? you, so you know, it's better than having a bankruptcy, but it's worse than having an active credit card that even if you don't use it, it potentially helps. So, so okay. when you're getting a mortgage, yeah, they say, you know, your car payments can determine something. Mm-hmm. So we paid off our cars before we got a mortgage so we could get a little bit higher. Okay. But what do you advise people to do if they can, would, so put, maybe instead of putting 20% down, mm-hmm. they put 15% down, use 5% to pay off the car yeah. loans. Is that something that you could? That's a smart better? idea. I've saved a lot of files like that. One yeah. time a client came to me. They're already firm on their purchase. Their brokers said, sorry, I can't do it unless you get 20% down, even though they pre-approved them with five. I looked at their file. I saw that they had a huge car loan uh, in terms of the monthly payment. It was like yeah. six or $700 a month, but the balance was like 10K. Yeah. They had 40K for their down payment, but the 5% was less than that. So they couldn't afford to do what you just said, take a piece of their down payment, pay off their car loan, reduce that total debt, and now qualify. So in certain circumstances, that's an excellent strategy. doesn't work always. Yeah, but sometimes it. Yeah. People have a misconception um, that no matter what debt you have, it's going to bring down your borrowing power. It's not true. So to qualify for a mortgage, you can have, without being complicated, you can have 5% of your gross income devoted to debt. And let me give you an example. Yeah. If you make $120,000 a year salary, which is $10,000 a month, you can have a car payment or a credit card or whatever it is up to $500 per month, which is 5%, without it having any effect on your borrowing power. So you can have 5% of, of a gross, car, a car 5% income. of a credit yeah. card? Whatever. Any monthly payment, whether yeah. it's a lease, car financing, a credit card, a line of credit, a student loan, um, spousal support, as long as it does not exceed 5% of your gross monthly income, zero effect on your amount that you're approved for. Mm. Once the uh, car payment exceeds that 5%, if you now have a $1,000 car payment, that's when you're going to start to see your maximum mortgage get impacted. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, good luck having a car payment lower than $500 <laughs> yeah, it's a tough. month right now. Yeah, right right now it's, uh, what's your car payment? You just <laughs> got a car. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man, yeah. You know, a lot of people come to me with a large car payment. And we end up refinancing their their car, depending on how long they've had it and uh, the value. If we can shave the monthly payment down, it can sometimes increase their approval amount. So there's different creative ways we can look at a file to see how we can, uh, you know, get yeah. it better. And is it true that um, when when you buy a house, for example, do not buy a car within X amount of time? Like, what's the time frame for that? Is it six months? Is it a year? Like, Great question. And bro. what's the repercussions on that? So I have like a sheet with my closing package I sent to all my clients, yeah. 11 things not to do. One of them is, you know, getting a credit card, buying a new car, financing furniture before closing. Okay. Once you close and you're approved and you got your keys, if you want to buy a car, go nuts, buy a car. <laughs> There's no, t- you can do it the next day. Um. You know, because that's after the fact. The mortgage has already been approved, right? So there's no issue there. Just don't do it before yeah. because some lenders do a secondary credit check a few days before they release the money. You might be approved today and closing in two months, but Scotiabank might pull your report again. They have authorization to do so five days before. If they see a brand new car loan, that's going to completely rearrange their application and they have the right to say no. So as long as you do after closing, you're good. 
Uh, there you go. You're not buying. A, you're not buying a house soon. That's right? a very important <laughs> bit of information yeah. for some people. For out some there. people, yeah, especially Absolutely. like first time home buyers. I know, yeah. Brendan. You want to touch up on first time home buyers? Uh, I actually want to get up, uh, asking about fixed rates, yeah, uh, sure. variable rates, um, how uh, the government bond yields affect mortgage rates. So, can you explain a fixed rate? Sure. Should I just, you want me to explain like the difference between the two first? Yeah, so maybe yeah, you can like fix, fix, Because fix like right now we're seeing more people jump on and kind of get into a fixed rate rather than like last year. I'm guessing you probably saw more people leaning towards a variable, variable rate, correct? Yeah. It's funny, man. I think from my experience with clients, they lean into their professional. What I mean by that is they trust them. Yeah. So if I'm telling them, I think you should go this way or I think you should go that way, they might listen. But I don't, I don't talk like that. I give them the pros and cons, the risks and the benefits of both options. And based on their financial situation, based on the tolerance for their own risk, they can decide which way to go. But the basic difference is a fixed rate mortgage, the interest rate and the payment is locked in for your term length. A term length can be a one-year term. You can go all the way to 10 years. Most common is a five-year fixed or five-year term. And, and sorry, in that fixed rate, mm-hmm. um, between say day three-year, is there a difference between three-year and five-year what the interest rate is? Yeah, there okay. is. So uh, banks make the most money the longer you're locked in for two reasons. In a high interest rate environment like we're in right now, if they get you to lock in a five-year fix at 499, and if they anticipate rates coming down, they know they just locked you in for 5% when you could have got a two-year then renewed into a 2%. Yeah. That's one way they make money. The second way, which is arguably their most profitable and sneaky way, is the break penalty. If you get a five-year fixed and two or three years down the line you sell or you refinance and you can't port that mortgage over to your new house, they can charge you with a huge penalty. Um, especially in a – like I've seen penalties, $30,000. How much left? How much left in the mortgage at thirty thousand? Like five hundred thousand, which is like what is that? Six percent of their mortgage in a fee. Yeah. That's why banks. Yeah. You know, all respect to my lending partners. I love my banks, but <laughs> a lot of them push the five year. I don't. Well, I I don't want to say I don't blame them because they get more commission for that, right? Yeah. The longer they lock in. Um, same with us, but I don't push one way or the other. Like if a client it wants to go fixed, I will advise them. Listen, rates are high right now. If you think rates are going to come down within the next five years, then there's no point in getting a five-year fixed. You should get a one, two, or three-year. Yeah. After that's done, see where the market is at. Call me, and we can see where we can renew you at. Okay. So that's a, a the, so that's, fi- that's that's fixed, fixed right? So and then there's the variable. Variable, I like variable. Variable is for someone who um, is able to sleep at night, even though things are not. Guaranteed and certain. Like to gamble. Uh, a little bit, you know, <laughs> maybe an investor type, maybe someone who's willing to take a risk, someone who understands the market more and understands how it works. Because if you look at a past 30-year chart of fixed versus variable, on average, variable is less. When you get a fixed, you're paying a little bit of a premium for that security of it never switching. Yep. Whereas variable, if the uh, rate goes up, your payment also goes up. If the rate goes down, your payment also goes down. So that's variable. There's actually two types of variables without getting... Yeah, so I want to ask you, I know there's two types. Yeah. So if you wouldn't mind just yeah, of course. touching on the two types and yeah. what their names I are. I got you. Yeah. Variable is a generalized term. Technically speaking, it's a, vari- a, a static variable mortgage and an adjustable rate mortgage. Um, a static variable, a lot of clients picked it and then regretted it. They advertise it as 
when the rate goes up, your payment stays the same. The amount that you pay towards your principal goes down and the amount that you pay towards your interest goes up, right? Um, but that only happens until what we call a trigger rate. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Because we're seeing a lot of trigger rates. Yeah, explain what trigger rates are So as well, yeah. that strategy of static variable only works if the fluctuation in the rate is super small. When rates have gone up 4%, like we've seen, eventually the amount of interest that you owe is no longer being covered by your monthly payments. And when that happens, you reach your trigger rate, and the bank says, listen, Mr. Smith, your $2,000 payment, we appreciate it, but your interest is $3,000 a month. So you need to increase your payment now. And now all these static variable holders are shocked because they just went from a $2,000 payment to a $3,000 payment overnight. Whereas an adjustable rate, every time the Bank of Canada increased it, quarter point, half a point, 1%, they felt a small increase in their monthly payment. So they weren't completely shocked. They felt yeah. the same $1,000 increase, but it was less. It was a little, little bit at a time, right? Yeah. That's why if you do go variable, I'm more of a fan of a true adjustable rate mortgage where you pay as it goes up, you pay as it goes, as it it goes, goes down. down. So with trigger rates, mm-hmm. what are you seeing right now in the market? Because we want to jump into the market right now talk about the market, but yeah. in the trigger rates, are you seeing a lot of people hitting the trigger rates and what's the consequences of them doing that? Can they afford two, $3,000 more a month or are they Good question, doing man. amortization for 50 years now? Yeah. I've seen um, most people who got a variable rate mortgage after the pandemic started, after March 2020, they have hit their trigger rate because variable rate mortgages have gone up more than 4%. So almost all of them have hit their trigger rate. Um, whether or not they can afford it, most can, I would say. The reason being is because when we approve a mortgage, if the rate when they got approved was 1.5 variable, five-year, we test them, their finances, as if the payment was five and a quarter percent, right? So basically, we, we, we do a calculation. We see what would the payment be if it was at five and a quarter? Can you afford that? Even though you were getting you a lesser payment. Because with variable, rates go up, your payment can go up. Yeah. So most of them can't afford it. I'm sure it's it's not easy. Like they're increasing their mortgage payment by 20, 30, 40% sometimes. So it's definitely taking a toll maybe on their budget. But I think most of them can't afford it at this time. Yeah. So you're not, you're not seeing like people are going to be defaulting on the mortgages at all soon or? Yeah, we're at the, one of the lowest default rates we've seen uh, in, in Canada in a long time. And I think that's not because people aren't feeling the strain. It's because the last thing someone's going to let go and not pay is their mortgage. First, they're going to let go of their credit card or they're not going to pay their car note if they're, you know, in trouble. The last thing, the thing they're going to protect first is their house where they live. So even though their mortgage uh, payment is not in default, that's not to say they're not struggling somewhere else potentially. Yeah. So then then when people are saying, you know, people are going to be foreclosing the houses and everything, there's going to be a huge Mm sell-off on houses. You don't see that happening then. If it, I have seen some power of sales, but not as much as like it's predicted. To, to be know. honest, I haven't like dove into numbers and seeing yeah. what it is now versus before in terms of power of sales. One of my clients bought a power of sale, and you know, there's sometimes some advantages to buying power of sale. But I don't see a flood of inventory coming from people who can't afford their mortgages. No, I've had people call me and say, "Aubrey, the rate's going up. Uh, my mortgage is going up. You know, it's getting a little bit tight." But I don't have people saying, I'm about to file bankruptcy, bro. I can't, I can't take this uh, payment anymore. It's mm-hmm. not like that. I actually wanted to ask you about um, 
finance conditions. Sure. Um, I guess like last year, um, you know, people were getting multiple offers on their home. You had to kind of act fast or you're going to lose out. Did you see a lot of that last year? Like a lot of um, people not putting in finance conditions. And now this year they have a lot more time to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, breathe, say, okay, what's important? Do I need to like get my, you know, just make mm-hmm. sure everything's in order. Yeah. And I guess you'd always advise or most cases advise that it's important to have those kind of conditions in there, right? So awesome question. And I think when we're looking at last year, last year wasn't a normal market by any means. It was like crazy buyer activity, the highest seller market like we've ever seen in a while, right? So then, yeah, a lot of my clients were waiving their financing condition, going in firm because they've been advised that, listen, everyone else is going firm. So they're not going to take your offer if you go condition of financing. Yeah. I still did have some clients yeah. in secondary markets that wasn't as competitive, got uh, with a condition of finance. But as of now, yeah, like if it's not going to affect your offer and you're not competing against the firm offer, you should always include a condition of financing because at the end of the day, that protects you in case your financing doesn't go through. But my job as an agent, a mortgage agent, is to look at your file before you put in that offer to make sure everything is solid. If I see anything that might affect your approval chances, I'll let you know that up front. And at that point, you can greatly consider whether or not you want to put in a condition of finance. That's always the client's option. Um, I just tell them up front if it's going to be a, a smooth file based on what we're looking at yeah. or if there's any potential issues. So now when you're looking at these files, have you had a situation where it looks everything looks good on paper, you've done your due diligence, mm-hmm. they put an offer on a house, no conditions, no financing, mm-hmm. comes to close and they don't get approved. Whether it may be a bank appraisal or... Something went wrong yeah. there, like, or maybe you haven't experienced it, or if you heard of something yeah. like that. Like, what what happens in that? I've had I've had clients who went with another bank or broker, yeah. who were pre-approved or pre-approved, and submitted an offer, got accepted, and then they didn't get. Then they come to me, but me personally, I've never pre-approved someone and they bought something and didn't go through, uh, just because I because when I give someone a pre-approval, I take that shit seriously because they're about to put a thirty five thousand dollar deposit and that's their life savings, right? I'm not gonna. Uh, rush it or make a mistake. That's why I tell all my clients, it's, if if I'm busy, two to four business days to review your file in full, check the credit report um, to make sure everything is good. But there are situations where people go into a bank, like TD, Scotia, CIBC, they get a, pre, uh, a quick pre-qualification. They don't actually submit their documents. They just tell the banker, hey, I, I make 100 k I have $2,000 payment, blah, blah, blah. And they say, okay, you're qualified roughly about this number. Some people take that as, oh, shit, I'm, I'm approved for this number. Let's it's, go put yeah. an offer. That's actually what I was going to kind of <laughs> touch on. I was going to say, like, so for those that are comfortable with their bank, let's say they've been with TD for years, right? Mm-hmm. They might just say, you know what, why, like, shop around or speak to multiple, like, sources? I yeah. might just go to TD, see what I'm approved for. Do you... Would you recommend that a person kind of speaks to a variety or multiple or? Good question. Uh, Yes, I have no problem with clients speaking to multiple sources. At the end of the day, you're going to get more information. Um, To a certain point, though, that information can either be repetitive or, or let me put it to you this way. If a client asks me, can I go to my bank to check their rates as well? Absolutely. My job is to shop around, look at all the different lenders, including TD and Scotia and the big banks to see what we can get you. But um, there's nothing wrong with getting one offer from another guy and 
coming to me and asking as well. I have no problem with competition because, you know, we have access to all the same lenders. What really makes the difference between one broker to another, uh, to a different broker, is their experience and the relationship they have with the bank or the underwriter. Because if it is a tough file and we need an exception, it's hard to get an exception if you're a day one rookie and you just started the business. Whereas if we have a relationship and we do 10, 20 deals a month with one lender, they're going to look at the file and, and trust our, our advice. Yeah, tr- trust your advice. You know? yeah. so. Did you deal with um, A lenders and B lenders? Mm-hmm. You deal with both of them? You can explain what the difference is. For sure, bro. Because like, I know Brendan was saying he used a B lender before. Yeah. From what I don't have too much experience in that, like yeah. firsthand, but I do know like B lenders sometimes have a bad rap, a bad rap, yeah, or higher interest rates. And yeah, I have a B lender on my personal mortgage. Yeah. So if there was anything wrong with B lenders, <laughs> I wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, you know, people sometimes get confused with B lenders and private lenders, but I'll start with A and B. An A lender, it's a pretty vague term, um, but it includes the big five banks: CIBC, Scotia, TD, BMO. RBC, even HSBC. It also includes monoline lenders, which are mortgage lenders that only do mortgages. They don't do banking and investments like CIBC, for example. Those lenders are also considered A lenders. A few of them that I work with, RMG, Equitable Bank, First National, MCAP, um, and a lot of them only work with brokers. So if if, if a random client tried to call them, they would say, go through your broker. Those are A lenders. A lenders cater to insured mortgages, so less than 20% down. And in order to qualify, you have to have very good credit, 680 or higher typically, with two trade lines. Um, the amount you can borrow is slightly less than a B lender. Okay. And you have to have a clean file. Like if you're a, a business owner or a realtor and you just started, A lending is going to be very difficult to qualify unless you have a co-signer. Um, you basically need two years of self-employment history to qualify with an A lender. Yeah. The B side, uh, it's an alternative lending space that caters to self-employed people who are either new or established. It, it caters to people with not perfect credit who have had some mistakes in the past. caters to people who are investors and buying rental properties where Scotia or TD will cap you at a certain amount of rental properties, whereas the B lenders will allow you to borrow more as long as the cash flows. B lenders have a whole host of um, programs. The most common one is stated income for business owners, where if someone, let's say, has a corporation, they're doing very well, but they pay themselves $50,000 for their salary. We look at the actual business, how much they're making on their bank statements with revenue as opposed to their tax returns. So stated income, so like me, like we're real estate agents, you're a mortgage, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we would be more for the stated income? Exactly, bro. Okay. Because, you know, every situation is different, but um, let me put it to you this way. Unless you're paying yourself close to all of your gross commission after expenses, stated income is going to allow you to qualify for significantly more than an A lender, which would be just looking at your net business income on your taxes. Stated income is only B lenders or could A A lenders? Yeah, true stated income is only B lenders. There is a A stated income program, which is a little bit different. You need 10% down. And they look at a combination of your um, net business income and your gross. Um, but it's the true stated income program that's applicable to most business owners are on the B side. The difference is two things. The rate is slightly higher, sometimes even the same. Like I was looking at a two-year fix with Scotia versus uh, Equitable Bank. 
I think it was like a quarter percent different. So very minimal. The main difference is the fees. So B lenders are taking on more risk by taking on these types of borrowers. So as a result of taking on more risk, they have to charge for that. So they charge what's called a commitment or a lender fee, which is 1% of the mortgage. So if you're buying a million dollar home with a B lender, you're putting 20% down, you got an $800,000 mortgage, they charge you $8,000. And the broker can charge a broker fee as well, depending on the case, usually around 1% as well. Oh, okay. So, so there, that's an extra component oh, yeah. that you have to take into account on closing. Could be $16,000 extra. But if that $16,000 is going to allow you to qualify for a million-dollar purchase with them versus a $500,000 purchase with an A lender. It's worth it, it right? It it's, worth, worth it's worth it, it at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah. I want to ask something about, because you touched on co-signers, mm-hmm. and because there's, I guess, more people now, I feel like, needing a co-signer. Yeah, I wanted to touch on, on that a, too. So yeah. On a, you know, so once, you know, down the road, so they use a co-signer today, and then, you know, a couple years uh, down the road, now they're qualified, you know, everything's in order. How do they go about getting that co-signer off? Great question. I'm sorry, you. also, if you could explain what a co-signer is. Yeah, that's for all. sure. Yeah. yeah, sorry. No, all good. Um, a co-signer um, is similar to a co-applicant. Uh, the difference is a co-signer doesn't have to live in the property. Like, let's say you're buying a primary residence. Let's say me. I'm buying a residence uh, for myself, but I don't qualify. So I asked my mom, mom, can you help me co-sign on this property? Because your credit's really good. Your income's really good. And that way we can get the mortgage together. Um, that's an example of co-signing. Both of us, me and my mom, would be going on title of that property. We would share ownership. That can be 50-50 or it can be 99-1, whatever we agree to, agree to with the lawyer. We would be equally responsible for the mortgage payments and the property taxes, but whoever pays is between us. Like if I say, mom, help me, but I'll take care of the mortgage payments, then I can do that as well. If the plan is I'm getting my parent or my sibling to help me co-sign to buy this house, but eventually I want to take them off, that way they don't have that liability anymore, you can do that. Let's say you think in two years your income is going to – you're going to get a raise, you're going to do well in your business, and you're going to be able to qualify on your own. Then you should get a two-year fixed interest rate. That way at the end of that two years, you can remove the cosigner from title as long as you qualify for it on your own. It's a process done with the lawyers, and then that cosigner is no longer liable. You know, Sometimes – Sorry to keep going, but oh, go ahead, uh, go ahead. sometimes yeah. instead of co-signing and doing it as a favor, the co-signer is more like a partner because a lot of parents are looking to invest their money in real estate as well, but they don't have the opportunity. Yeah. So if, if me and a co-signer, my mom, for example, buy a, a condo 50-50, yeah. that way we can buy it together. I don't have to take her off title two years because she wants to be a part of it uh, and she wants to gain in the appreciation and the principal pay down and the cash flow if we're buying a rental over time. So it doesn't have to always be a favor from somebody. Yeah, uh, you can you can position it as a real estate investment, investment right? Exactly. Which they is, provide the capital, yeah. they provide the credit, I provide the deal. Like there's different and ways do to do it. Have you done a lot of deals with co-signers? Oh, many, like, yeah. all the time? So is that is that more like, I know me and Brendan have been talking about first-time home buyers and how can they afford something to come into market? Yeah, is that, like think of it this way, bro. An average couple, married couple, in Toronto GTA, let's say they're entry level, they're making, I don't know, each a salary of sixty thousand, let's say. Just, that's pretty basic, I think, if I'm not mistaken. That's like a hundred twenty thousand. You know okay, go. I no, actually have me. I actually have a client that it's it's one twenty. Yeah. Is what they're making. Right, which is pretty yeah, and they're, yeah, and they're trying to get 
approved through an A lender. Right. And I don't like to use rules of uh, thumbs too often, but in the current rate environment, if you're going through an A lender, you're going to get maybe around four times your household income. So, so is it, I've heard that. So is it four times or is it five times? It, it's dependent on the rates. Back in COVID, it was five, sometimes yeah. five and a half. That's when rates were lower and the payments were lower. Now that rates have gone up and the payments have gone up, you have to have more income to qualify for that same mortgage. So it's times four then, so right? Approximately, approximately for an A lender. With B lenders, it's a little bit more. Um, so yeah, that, that set of clients of yours, for example, that's going to be their basically their budget. Depending on how much down payment they have, it's going to be 480 mortgage plus down payment. Um, if they want to exceed that, they have to ask themselves two questions. One is, do they have a co-signer that's able and willing to help them? And two, don't just get a co-signer just to buy the house. What if you get a co-signer to buy the house, but that co-signer isn't helping you pay? Now you're going to be struggling to make that extra payment. So make sure you can actually afford it. Like, I'll give you an example. I had a, a, a pair of clients. They were going on the A side. The wife just started her career as a nurse on contract. So we couldn't use her income on the A side. But she was getting paid every two weeks a good amount of money. So she can afford it, but she couldn't be approved. In that case, we got a co-signer, which was her dad, just to co-sign to get the mortgage approved. But he had no uh, responsibility to actually pay monthly. It was all them. So they sometimes you can afford it, but you can't actually be approved based on the income. In that case, a co-signer is a great option. Okay. Yeah. Um, and oh, how I, know, I spoke a lot. Yeah, no, 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 <laughs> that's good. Um, the hot topic now is what's going on in the market with interest rates. Yeah, yeah. Um, me and Brennan talk about it all the time. Yeah. We get confused. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't I have you. to tell people half the time. Just <laughs> yeah, refer so, them to your, yeah, so you know, call Aubrey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So basically, you know, what's your insight on that? Where do you think it's going? And yeah. Also, like you know, maybe compare like 2021 compared to 2023, like. What it like the difference the between difference? an eight hundred thousand yeah. dollar mortgage then compared to now? Yeah, because there there the payments were lower. Yeah, but so I'll answer that part of the question in my second part because I want to say something that's really important. Yeah. When clients ask you or ask me where are interest rates going, I can give them my advice, no problem. But it's not really relevant. What's relevant is the monthly payment and how much can they afford. Are you looking to buy a home as your primary residence or you know or not? Because the rate itself isn't going to make or break you. Um, so that's that. But the difference between 2021 and 2023, back then, for every $100,000 you were borrowing, your payment was around $400 to $450. So if you were getting a $500,000 mortgage, you'd be looking at $2,000 to $2,300 a month. Now, that same $500,000 mortgage at current interest rates is north of $3,000 a month. So it's a significant increase um, in payments and people's overall affordability, for sure. Yeah, it's, no, it's crazy, yeah. Crazy. But to say where it's going, to, like if, if you want to give people answers on that, um, the Bank of Canada has paused their rates yeah. for variable. So they said, we plan on pausing. Our rate hikes have been working. Inflation is coming under control. As long as inflation continues to stay under control, we're not planning any future increases. I think once they get inflation under control, you know, with a good amount of certainty, then they will consider lowering the rates on the variable side. Okay. And that can be later this year or next year. Do you see – sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. So one last thing. I, 
I feel like we touched on this in the beginning, but I just want to yeah, correct me if we did touch on it. Uh, like how, so when the when the bond yield goes down, mm-hmm. how does that affect the fixed rate? Good question. And we didn't, we didn't touch on it too much, so happy to answer it. Um, so there's variable rates and there's fixed rates. They operate independently. When Bank of Canada raises their uh, prime lending rate, that's just variable. Fixed, on the other hand, are tied to bond yields, as you were mentioning. Bond yields are essentially an investment certificate from the government of Canada. If I pay $1,000, I get a a bond from the government of Canada. I'm basically loaning them my money, and then they give me a small return, right? Banks buy bond yields because it's one of the safest investments they can get. As long as the government doesn't collapse, they get that return. Right now, it's at around 3%. So if they're giving that same money, the bank's money, as a mortgage, which is more risky than a bond yield, that interest rate has to be higher than 3% right? Because bond yield is basically guaranteed at 3%. Mortgage, they want to get a better rate of return. So if bond yields go up, then fixed interest rates also have to go up. If bond yields go down, then they go down as well. So they're kind of related. They always want to, if they're doing a riskier investment like a mortgage, they just want to cover for that and charge more. Okay, perfect. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we'll wrap it up with that. Yeah, of course. Guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, it's for been sure. great having you. I hope to have you back soon. Yeah. 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 How it's about awesome, if, you, if you could tell people where they could find you? Sure. So I know you. I found you on social media, so I know you're big on social media. Yeah, for sure. Um, on TikTok and Instagram, you can find me at Mortgages by Aubrey. Um, you can Google my name, Aubrey Bornstein. All my details will pop up. My contact, my website is mortgagesbyaubrey.com. Uh, and yeah, that's the best way to get in touch with me. I appreciate you guys having me. No, it's a pleasure. Went by yeah. fast. We talked about some it good went stuff. By super fast. Yeah, we will Thanks have we'll have time. you back again. We yeah. got to yeah. talk a little bit more of what's going on with this yeah, interest rate. Covered a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah we did I'm cover glad. a lot. Hopefully, that's a big help to a lot of the viewers yeah. out there. Yeah, and absolutely. Well, I, I a big learned help to me. Yeah, I learned a lot too. Yeah. yeah so, of Thanks so much for having yeah. me. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.